Gregory. Hello, Vicky. How are you? You know, it's so it's it feels like going home, coming back and seeing you. And you know, we we don't know each other very well. We we have done this a couple times. You did my living room. We did Henry Jaglum's the M word. But when you've done Henry's movie and your living room, <laughs> you're intimate. It's pretty it. Okay, so how did I've never asked you this question? Aha, something new. How did you come to Henry? How did Henry come to you? How did that happen? I think it was Tana. I don't really know, but I think it was Tana. She probably had a crush on you. She used to get him to well, kind of, sort of, but she but she was a surfer. Yes, she loves surfing. Right. And she met me through, I think, through Sean Thompson, who was a famous world famous surfer from South Africa, one of my best friends for 40 years. And she got Sean to do something for a surfing charity. And then that's how she met me. And then I think she mentioned me to Henry and I went down and met with him and he was just thinking about what to develop the, the idea of the M word into. And then, you know, and then Henry ran with the idea. Once he gets, he gloms onto an idea, it, you know, then he, then he wrote, the part for me, I mean, the part that we didn't have any lines for, that we improvised the entire thing. But, but uh, in fact, one, <laughs> one time I was doing a scene with Michael Imperioli and we were, you might've been there. We were- I was there every day on set, yeah. Well, then you saw it. We were like doing all of the lines as written in the script and Henry said, stop, stop, what the, <laughs> now are you doing? <laughs> And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And Michael, says, we're looking at each other like, what? What did we do wrong? And we said, we're just doing the, doing what you wrote, Henry. And he goes, yeah, what the hell? And it was like, we both looked at each other and it was like, no, never before and probably never again will we be in this particular situation. Given a script and then told, don't do a single word of it. I can't believe you were given a script. I didn't even know there was a script. Well, a script of, you know, certain things. He didn't give me a script for my, I was playing a sportscaster. He didn't give me a script for my sportscasting. <laughs> do you remember? I had to do, I had to create a sportscast out of thin air. And all I could do is talk about river rafting and surfing and mountain climbing and biking and snorkeling. Thank goodness you have sports background though. Well, that's what I mean. Do. All the things that I do. I was, I would just, I just started talking about them and talking about the <laughs> snow conditions and the surf conditions and, and it worked, but it was terrifying. <laughs> it's just me, a talking head on the screen with no script for two or three minutes in the back. It was for me for a while. And in the background of a scene that was playing for a long time, I, you know, I was glad I did it. Doing a Henry Jaglin movie is a wonderful experience. Everybody should do it once at least you know he put me he gave me my moment and put me in a room with michael and said nothing yeah, yeah. <laughs> we go. just were go. in there go <laughs> and he left like you know he left a, a chunk of it in there and thank god michael you know was fabulous and just kind of you know he played with me and we just kind yeah. of played and he's having a moment again. Boy, are you watching White Lotus? Yeah. Well, I watched the first one. How can you not watch the second one? 
I think, you know, the second one started slow and I thought, oh no, but after like the second episode, I'm like so in, but what got me about Michael was he was really featured. That first episode was really his. And I thought, oh, this is a little, this is not the Michael actor I know, Mm -hmm. but he eased into the real I am not acting, I am being, you know, he totally became who he is in the second yeah. episode and on. Yeah. Really he's interesting I mean, to watch. You know, not to tell anybody, he's good. Yeah, he's great. He's, and he's, and you've he's not Michael with, Imperioli for no reason. He's not Michael Imperioli for no reason. We just re-binged The Sopranos last year and what an experience that was to watch it again. Wow. Um, now. I should and knowing that. him now, and, and yeah. I've interviewed yeah. a bunch of the guys from The Sopranos, and so that was just really interesting. So you, in that film also, Francis, Francis Fisher, who you then did The Lion in Winter a couple, two years ago or so. Three years three, ago. Is it three already? It seems like last year I did it at the Laguna Playhouse, Lion in Winter. She did the Kate Hepburn part. I did the Peter O'Toole role. It was like this tour de force play, one of the best written plays of all time. Absolutely. On a stage, we had the best time. She's such a fantastic actress. And just last night, I was catching up. I was binging. I'm binging on The Sinner right now. The new. Oh, I have to get the new season. Is it good? She's she's on it. Oh. Yeah, she's in the whole season, and she's playing fantastic. Great character. She let her hair go gray entirely. I can't oh. even imagine yeah. or picture that. No, you wait till you see it. Good for her. Yeah. And it's Frances. I mean, she's she is truly a dynamo and one of the great actresses. And and I'm so lucky to have had a couple of experiences with her. How did the line in winter happen? How did you two cast together? Was it your choice? Were you cast? How did it happen? No, it was uh I've been friends with Annie Wareham, who ran the Laguna Playhouse for about eight years. And and I did a couple of things down there before, and uh, I think don't think it was a full run place, but I did a couple of workshops and things down there. And so she wanted, she was looking for a vehicle for me. And that was what she came up with. And she thought of three or four actresses, but Frances was among them that she might put an offer out to. She wanted to run it by me and see any of them ring a bell for you. Well, I don't even need to mention who the others were because as soon as I heard Francis's name, first of all, she's perfect. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it would give us a chance to do all the making out we didn't get to do on the <laughs> M. You know, as my wife calls it, legal cheating. <laughs> so, so, uh, so it was like we made the offer and she I wasn't sure she would take it because it's it's a it's a, a marathon. It's a lot of dial. It's two and a half hours yeah. on stage, and it's mostly she and I. Yeah. And uh, did you see it? I did not see the play. I'm heartbroken that I did not. And I don't. I don't know why. I don't have a good. Re- I must have had a good. All reason. right. That's all right. You know, no, you I knew. No, no. It's okay. It's a drive to Laguna. Well, but, no, but, you're worth. But that it was drive. a great production, and it's it sort of it's sort of rekindled. It, I wasn't quite sure if I still had the. The wherewithal to remember all those lines and all. This is what I want to talk to you about. On a stage, and uh, I, I felt good about what what we did, and I felt. Uh, How did you do it? Did you, do you have? Because now you're doing. You've been doing a soap for the last couple of years. How do you learn the damn lines? That's the only reason I'm doing a soap. 
I was, I didn't do a soap for 47 years of my career. <laughs> I got a career going without having to do a soap. And I thought, oh, never mind. Yeah, that's it. I ain't never doing a soap then because that's terrifying. And I don't ever want to learn all that dialogue. And I don't want to, I don't, I, how good can you be when you don't get any rehearsals and you just mm -hmm. memorize 20 or 30 pages a day and, and walk up there and basically put your first take down on film and then that's it. And it, all of that is true, mm. but it's, it, there's more discipline required and I do more homework and it's, it's a real challenge. It's another hybrid version of acting, which as we've talked about before, I, I just keep wanting to enlarge my, my repertoire of types of acting, radio plays, books on tape, um, you know, uh, film, theater, whatever. And soaps are a whole other venue, you know, and, and have a whole other set of demands and good soap acting is a little slightly different sometimes than good acting on a, certainly than acting on a stage, but it's mostly close-ups and right. it's film acting with a theater feel because there's four or five cameras always running. And, but there's no audience, of course, there's the crew who couldn't be more bored. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you, you, you're moving so fast. Okay, so seriously, so fast, I'll go in with 30 pages, I'll get in at 630 in the morning, by, by 745, they're calling me up to do a, blo a blocking, well, you're, you're wearing masks, still, we're wearing masks, I just, right. just did this yesterday, you're wearing masks, you go up, and with the masks on, so you can't hear each other. You can't understand <laughs> what anybody's saying. You, you're walking with, you're holding a pencil. You're walking. They're saying, okay, go stand over here. And then, then we say that. We'd like you to cross over there. <laughs> Jotting that down on my, on my script. And, and you run your lines one time. Basically, you're reading them while you're writing. Right. And then you go back down to the dressing room. You get your clothes on. You finish with your hair and makeup. And maybe you get an hour to sit in a room with your scene partners and run the words. Wow. Then they, they call you at nine o'clock. They call you up. This is a normal day. Call you right. up. They say, okay, that bubble of that story, come on up. And <laughs> they you, you with masks on, you run the scene one time for the <laughs> camera. And then they say, okay, masks off. Five, four, three, two, and you are on film. Well, you're on tape. And as soon as it's as soon as you finish that piece, usually with you know the the look between people that holds forever before they break, then they go, okay, masks on, next piece. And literally, I'll be I'll do thirty pages, and I'll get there at six thirty, and at nine thirty, nine forty-five, I am on the road driving home. What? Yeah driving home wow no, and i live an hour and 20 minutes north of la so you know it's, so how is I, that time i wanted is to ask time you for me because i i learned my lines on the way down there okay so how do you do that do you t talk into a voice record how do you do it no no i just run it but i start i get the script four or five days ahead of time usually uh they're really good about it actually and uh and then i'll i do beach walks you you're on my, you you see my Facebook post. I, I post more sunsets than anybody. You, you know. have the most gorgeous sunset. But how do you do? You, are you listening to the light? I take my script with me. No, I take my you script read it. With me. 
I get a hard copy of the script. Most of these actors on the soap are using iPads. I don't even know how. Um, <laughs> I, I'm old school. Give me a hard, give me a paper hard copy and let me highlight it and write notes in the margins and then I'm good. And I walk down the beach three or four miles. And by the time I get back, I'm pretty familiar. And then I do that maybe the next night with it. And the following morning, driving down to work for an hour and 20 minutes, I'm finishing off. But wait, wait, when you're driving, unless they send a car for you, you can't read. I have a new car that uh, it's a, a Honda uh, CRV hybrid. It keeps me in the lane, keeps me from tailgating. <laughs> and and tell me you're reading and, your script and keep yeah yeah i wouldn't want to be on the road with me but <laughs> i don't have my phone in my hand so i can't get arrested but i have the script right there and as i'm driving wow. i know it by then i'm i'm, I'm running the lines I'm, mostly i just glance at it to to get the cue from her or whoever right and then i run the lines as i'm driving and then i the next line i see what she says to me and then i run the next line i know it by then i get to work Boom, boom, boom. Okay, it's really different. So, so at this stage of life, are you learning lines the same way you always did? Is it different? I mean, my memory is not what it was. It terrified, this whole thing terrifies me of how you do this. No. Do you have a system? No. No. I don't have a system. I, I don't know how I do it. I, I do it. I, I, I spend more time. I do more homework now than I ever did. You have to know, it's interesting on a soap, you have to know who you're in the room with. How do you feel about everybody? What are you, why, what's your objective? And it's, it's acting 101. What's your objective? Why are you walking in the room? Um, and, and kind of the music of the scene, idea-wise, and the last three words of your line. Because they don't give you lines, they give you paragraphs. And, and usually two or three sentences at a time. And you can paraphrase all the way up to the Okay, last... that's what I wanted to know. Can paraphrase you do... all the way up to the last three words, and that's somebody's cue. <laughs> and, you got to nail that. And you nail the last three words just, just to respect their need to, to know when do I talk. And, uh, and that's simp simplification, of course. I mean, there's 50 years of... of, of acting skill development going into of course but just in terms of the lines yeah i mean it ain't shakespeare and i think by by paraphrasing i'm actually making it more natural conversational and conversational and truer to a character that i'm trying to develop and uh and it's i mean they you know i did it for almost a year just recurring and then they said would you like to sign a three-year contract so i Apparently, I'm in doing it right. Apparently, I mean, you're you can't argue it. with results. Apparently, the results are there. However, I do it doesn't matter to them. You know? And how grueling? How grueling is it? Once I got past the first two or three weeks of terror, <laughs> when I'd get the when I'd get these scripts and the you know email, and here's 20, 30, every page I turn on. I mean, I'm just huge chunks and i'm going what 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 <laughs> tomorrow um once i got do they do that to you do they sometimes like dump it on you like right no before? no it'd be like like three days from now okay still but there would sometimes i work three or four days a week so i've got 80 90 pages of dialogue that week God. 
you know. I Just last it. week, I did, well, the last three weeks, I did two episodes of 911 and General Hospital, five days a week, each week for three weeks. Oh my so, god! Because General Hospital isn't Disney show, and and nine one one is. And don't you also have Ch Chesapeake Shores? Isn't that? I did that. That yeah, I did that a few months ago. Okay. That's over now. That series is over. Um, the final season happened. But was there a point when you were doing all three at, at any given time? Well, yes, but I but General <laughs> Hospital then had to like let me out of my contract for three weeks to go up there and do it in Canada. Chesapeake Shores shoots in Vancouver on the island. Oh, wow. of Vancouver. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I have when when the pandemic, the reason I said yes to the soap is because it was the first thing offered when a protocol was figured out mm. in, in the film industry and the most the, 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 the easiest uh, sets to to control were soap sets. Why is that? All in one building, sound stages, little story bubbles with a few characters in each, mm -hmm. um, very easily uh, controlled mm. and, and protected. You could protect the crew from the cast, the casts from other members of the cast, because most stories don't crisscross. You right, know, right. Do they crisscross. Mm -hmm. So that was the first offer that came in. And after 47 years of saying no to about 15 great. Mm -hmm. You know, to play Susan Lucci's new husband or whatever it was, which happened several times. Yeah. I and I would go, no, no. <laughs> and I heard myself go, yeah, tell him yeah, tell him yeah. And then it was like an out-of-body experience. And I, I couldn't believe I had just done that. And then it was terror for about three or four weeks until until I figured out, oh man, I can I can do this. And well, so now goes, is it? Are you kind of in the rhythm? So yeah, that... and I'm having fun, and I like the people, and 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 you know, I mean, it's a steady check. I'm 72 years old, Vicky. It's unbelievable. I'm it's 72. Unbelievable. It means I'm going to be working till I'm 75. It's fantastic. When I when I was 20, and I came, I got out of the army, and I. Came to Hollywood. You, you We're know, talk that. about that um, on the GI Bill, uh, studying in acting schools, you know, at, at Strasburg and Estelle Harmon and all those. I if you'd asked me, what's your dream? My dream wasn't to be rich or famous. Um, you know, I hoped that would happen because it would be a sign that things were working. But my dream was to be a working actor for the rest of my life. That was my dream. And that look how you're I, living That's now. what I had in my head. And that I'm, I'm going to be 75 and still working. So you've I've got to feel good about that. Hell yeah. And lucky. I mean, dream. so lucky. Well, lucky, but you've delivered the goods and you've worked hard and you've you've adapted to so many different mediums, which is enough. OK, so you told us how you do it for the soap. Lion and Winter, that's a lot of dialogue. Yeah. Um, did you have a lot of preparation time? Did you have a lot of rehearsal time? I did. did I, that I, go? No, we had a month of rehearsals, which is pretty typical of a, of a, you know, not summer stock, but of a regular play rehearsal schedule. Right. Um, but, but Frances was struggling because she didn't start learning lines until the first day of rehearsal. Oh. Because she had, she had a, she was moving. She had a grand 
child who she was trying to help her daughter move with. She had all these things going on in her life. I had had back surgery about a month before I started rehearsal. And so I was in the house here recovering from back surgery and I would sit in on the couch, you know, and rest my back with the, with the play in my hands and run lines. So I didn't, that doesn't really help you in terms of the, the stuff that you're relating to other characters, but right. it's, I'm playing a king. I love to hear the sound of my own voice. I had huge pages of monologues. Soliloquies. Soliloquies. <laughs> and I learned those. And armed with that, with those all those big chunks already in my back pocket, then I started rehearsals mm -hmm. and had to learn the connecting tissue. You know, okay, I so now I'm interested. in the performance and all that stuff, but I knew the lines at least. What kind of, I have severe stenosis and other, what kind of back surgery did you have? Um, I had a nerve in my lower back that got uh, unimpinged through surgery, you know. It was the same doctor that had uh, created a synthetic disc for Randy's, my wife's back a year earlier and to great success had, had, it was a completely successful operation. She was walking like a 90 year old and in constant pain and having to take pain killing drugs all the time for two or three years and totally freed her from everything. And she's, wow. she's now carrying two grandchildren around all the time. So, so I knew he was a great doctor, a great surgeon. And I went to him and he, he said, yeah, oh yeah, I can fix that. That's, that's not an issue. And, and yours was completely he, successful as well. Completely. Are you surfing? Yeah, surf, golf, yeah. Wow, okay, <laughs> that's crazy right there. That's very inspiring. Okay, so, so has anybody gotten, how has the pandemic, being on a soap opera said, okay, you're wearing your mask, you're doing all the protocol, but yeah. do people get sick anyway? Yeah, oh yeah, some people have. And there were a couple of actors on the show, which you may or not have heard about, who refused to get vaccinated. Um, for their own reasons, and and uh, they were politely let go, mm -hmm. um, and and that's no longer really an issue. Everybody on the set has been vaccinated. We all wear masks, and it's you know, I mean, it's time has passed, and it's a lot safer world, so people aren't running around quite as scared. But we still every I, I test the day before I go in every week. Mm -hmm. Usually, I test three times a week. Have you had it? I have never had it. Me either. Knock on wood. Spit. Yeah, poo, poo, poo. The last time I saw you, um, you were turned down for your COVID vaccine. You and Randy had gone, and they turned you away. Um, was that when we last? Me. Was that when we last talked? That it was before the yeah, very first so. COVID vaccine. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We weren't like uh, at risk enough. So they well, we weren't well because you weren't in LA. You didn't have we here everybody over sixty five. We could go and we could get it. You guys were told seventy seven or some ridiculous seventy five or something up there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but I've had life, them all now, and I've had boosters, and I'm up to date with everything. Hey, I just had the shingles one two days. I had that, that kicked my year. ass. Yes, have you had <sighs> both of them? No, I got the first one on Sunday and oh, oh my God, the next day I was laying on the couch like a lox. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and the second one I'm afraid isn't any better. That, I've heard it's worse. No. 
<laughs> no. Oh, but better than year. shingles. Better than shingles. So speaking of that, Jeffrey and Sherman I had the, says- And this last booster I had, I had the flu shot at the same time. The new I flu. got the flu shot. Okay, do you know the secret of the Fiji water? The no. secret of the COVID vaccine or of any shot is you drink a ton of Fiji water before and after. And there's something about the electrolytes and the hydration. And so the last couple of boosters, I had no reaction, almost nothing to the flu shot. Um, but it didn't work for the shingles one. Yeah. But I got oh. the shingles one now because Jeffrey Sherman, who says sends his love to you, I love his Wendy got shingles a few months oh, ago really? and it was horrible and um oh, yeah. it, that put the fear in me and I went and finally got the thing but do you, do you know where she got it I mean on like, her face on her face and the scary thing is that it almost moved into her eye and there are people who have it somebody was telling me today that they're in the back of the eye and it feels like you've got lightning bolts going to your brain like it's so painful yeah you, well, and it can cause blindness I'm not surprised that it can cause blindness. I mean, Randy gets it on her back. Um, oh no. She had like once or twice in her life on her back. She said it's like a hot knife blade. And can a she still get the shingles blade. vaccine even though she had the shingles? You can't. She's had it. She It's gonna come back, you know, when it wants to. Um, hopefully rarely or never. Wow. Yeah. 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 All right. So, so are you guys? But anyway, I want let me. You know, I did, we skipped right through. I I'm doing a recurring role on nine one one, which uh, I've done four episodes now, playing uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt's father. Um, which just I don't know why that cracks me up, but it does. <laughs> um, because I'm you so would have been her I'm love so interest. Old. I'm so freaking old. I can play Jennifer Love Hewitt's father. You would have been her love interest like three years ago. That's what I'd like to think. <laughs> it's no? true. It's true. A little pervy to think that, but I'd like to think that. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and I, I did a couple of episodes uh, uh, about a year and a half ago in conjunction with General Hospital, right when I was first starting General Hospital. Right. And then I did a couple more in the last three weeks that, that uh, everybody worked together well and allowed me to do both. Fantastic. All working out. It's it's fantastic. So are you guys back to norm, normal? Are you living normally? What, what is life like for you and Randy? Well, you can see my surfboard up there. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, this is my little beach house up here in, in Oxnard Shores, Mandalay Beach. Gorgeous. And, yeah, it's gorgeous. That's why I walk the beach right here every night. And you're commuting to General Hospital to yeah. do that? Wow. It's worth it. It's worth it peace of mind and it and it's sort of like that hour hour and 20 minutes each way is a time for me to rev up and work my lines but also just to rev up my energy level to enter into the business you know to get right. that sound stage and do my thing high energy you know try try and up my charisma level or whatever it is you know and be <laughs> and be present and then on the way home, it's like exhale, detox, uh, slow it down. By the time I get home, that hour and 20 minutes has allowed me to, of mindless driving, has allowed me to uh, walk into the living room and be ready to, you know, totally relax and 
and detach from that other thing I do for a living. It's really nice. I'm, I'm loving life right now. Oh, that's so wonderful. And do you guys, do you do restaurants? Do you travel? Do you do all yeah. the things? We, yeah, we just went up for Thanksgiving to my oldest daughter's house up in Portland. And uh, she and her husband and my two granddaughters, uh, we, we spent uh, six days with. And, uh, and uh, then my other daughter, Kate, and her girlfriend came up and stayed. We all stayed in a rental house next door. And uh, we had a family. The only one we were missing was Lily, my middle daughter, who just had Jack uh, Facinelli. You know, Peter Facinelli, right? You know that? Why do I know that name? Um, Peter was in Twilight. He played the father character oh, in Twilight. Wow. Wow. Uh, he was in Nurse Jackie. He played. Oh that, wow! Yeah, that sure. I know who, Surgeon I know exactly Nurse who Jackie. Yeah, really good actor. Great guy. Um, and where do they live? Uh, he and he and, and Lily have been together for about five years, and they just had their first and I suspect only child together, but you never know. Um, but it's a boy. I have some testosterone finally in the family, <laughs> and uh, and it's so much fun. I'm, and is it? and I'm, I'm finding now that going down to work, it isn't an hour and 20 minutes home because I invariably stop to visit Jack. Oh, play with him for half an hour, 45 minutes before I get back in the car. And come. You know what I mean? So I, I can have this ongoing relationship with my new grandson. How lovely. How old is he? Three months and two days. Is it true what they say about being a grandparent, that it's like the greatest thing? Yeah, it is. I used to get kind of bored hearing that because as a parent, it's so exhausting and it's not fun so much of the time. <laughs> That's why it's so much fun as a grandparent. As soon as the only time that they ever see me is it, it's it's good news. I'm bringing good news. <laughs> you know, grandpa and grandma are here. Good things are going to happen. <laughs> if, if bad things are going to happen, we're not delivering it. We're handing them back to mom and dad who can deliver the bad news. Absolutely. We're just there to make them happy. And it, that, so that it, the look on their faces when they see us or, you know, even on Zoom is just priceless. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. So are you guys, are you going to movies? Are you going to concerts? Are you living normally? I am. I am. Randy's not so comfortable doing mm -hmm. that. She's never been that, that, She's never been as social as I am anyway. And I love to go to theater. I, I have theater buddies I go to plays with, people who are in plays. I just saw The Inheritance at the Geffen. And there's so many great things. Have you there. seen Richard Thomas yet? In, um... I didn't get to see Richard. No, I, I, I was is going he, to go. Is it done? I want to go. It's done. It closed on the 27th. <sighs> yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, three days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And I, I really felt bad about that because I love Richard and have known him for <laughs> you know, since I started. Um, but I heard it was great. Yeah. And uh, maybe I'll catch it you know, somewhere else on its tour. He's touring with it. So how did, okay, so let's tell the people who don't know your stories. You know, it, I feel like we've told the glass bottom boat story, but we have to touch on it because this is such a crazy um, history that you have. So yeah. unusual. There's no one else who's <laughs> who has this history. So you grew up on Catalina Island. Yeah. Um, and tell us why. My grandfather started the Glass Bottom Boats. He went there from Ireland in 1901 or two. And um, 
And he started the Glass Bottom Boat Tour over there. Well, he was one of the people who started the Glass Bottom Boat Tour, a rowboat at that point. Wow. A couple of glass boxes in it. And he'd take 12 or 15 people out on the rowboat and show them the undersea gardens. And then he started diving off the boat with some fish in his hands, some dead chopped up fish in his hands. And he'd feed the fish, but bring the fish under the glass. He'd feed the fish. And people loved that. I mean, the fish would come in the hundreds around him and be eating out of his hands and he'd be waving at the people and the, <laughs> looking down. And then it became so popular and the tourism became such a, a, a trade that, mm -hmm. that they ended up being like 12 boats. Oh, wow. 12 I don't even know that I you know, knew that. People, people rowing with, you know, the tour guides in each boat rowing out over the undersea gardens. And my grandfather would dive under all the boats and feed all the fish under the glass of 12 boats and then come up for air. Wow. So he ended up setting the world's record. He had three minutes and 48 seconds free diving. And, and, uh, uh, so then my father was born in 1912. And uh, uh, in 1926, Amy Semple McPherson, that famous evangelist, media evangelist, uh, radio at that time, um, internationally famous, millions of followers, said, I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to jump off the pier in Santa Monica and uh, into the ocean. And I'm going to reappear in the desert in a few weeks and prove to you that I am the daughter of God. And and uh, thousands of followers came to watch her do it. And uh, there were a lot of police there to monitor the crowds and watch this thing happen. And she jumped off the pier and didn't come up. So they said, oh, she's drowned. So the police got their boats and they got those guys in the big helmets with the tubes to jump off the pier and look for her body. And nobody could get to, nobody could find her body. And they said, well, um, Oh, I forgot to tell you, my, my grandfather was the constable in Avalon by that time. He had been, been assigned, you know, elected or whatever, the constable, the local law enforcement in town. Um, so they said, we have a guy who works for us over in Catalina who's a freediver and he doesn't have to wear these big, huge suits and he could get in between those pilings and get her body. Let's send over, they send a cigarette boat that goes like 40, 50 miles an hour over to the island for, you know, it took a half an hour, brought him back and said, can you find her body? So he free dove all that afternoon looking for her body and couldn't find it. Got slammed up against a piling at one point and hurt his back. I said, I'm sorry, she's not down there. She's not there. They said, okay, thanks. And they sent him back to the island on the cigarette boat. And that night, he, my father, who was 14, I think at the time, um, said he remembered his father moaning and woke him up with, with the sounds of his of moaning and pain. and and uh, they had to put him on, a, on that same cigarette boat back to the mainland to try and get him to a hospital. And he died mid-channel of uh, peritonitis. His kidneys exploded. Oh, my. It poisoned his own system and died oh mid-channel. And, and uh, the last thing he said to my father was, take care of your mother. And, uh, and then the boat went off into the darkness. Um, ah. Three weeks go by, well, a terrible thing, you know, and... and uh, uh, and then just a real tragedy. And about three weeks later, uh, uh, somebody's driving down Death Valley and they see this, this figure in these dusty old robes on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and it's Amy Selma McPherson. 
struggling along and they pick her up and bring her you know to the city and the, the miracle has been completed and and uh, you know and she goes to whole new heights of of, of fame and uh, and uh, a few weeks later, about six weeks later, as I, I think that was about six weeks, somebody walked into the Santa, a guy walked into the Santa Monica Police Department and said, my name's blah, blah, blah. And I, I am me and these two guys, and he named them, uh, were under the pier with air hoses. And we got her out of there, put her in my car. <laughs> I drove her up to Santa Cruz. We stayed in a hotel room. She and I were, were lovers and we trysted in a hotel room for three weeks. And then I drove her out to the Death Valley and dropped her off. And I'll testify to it in court. Bitch, just drop me. And uh, wow. And so she gets tried for fraud and second degree manslaughter. I was going to say, did she get tried for murder or whatever they would second call it? Manslaughter. Because <gasps> of my grandfather. Right. In the process of her fraud. But the other two guys said, we don't know what he's talking about. It ended up being a he said, she said case. She said, she, of course, said, that's. I, it's ridiculous. I, I, I performed a miracle, and they only had him and no no other witnesses. So she was found innocent of fraud. Wow. Therefore, there was no manslaughter. Wow! And, and uh, it was just a terrible accident. And uh, and then my father, uh, within a couple of years, took over the glass bottom boats. By now, it was a much bigger boat and held you know it's like 140 passengers. And had, oh wow! eight boxes, eight big glass boxes with about, you know, 15 people around each one. And he ran them for 55 years. And then I was supposed to run them. Yeah, wait, did your father do the same thing? Would he dive underneath? No, he didn't dive. He was, he he, he was captaining. He was, he was in World War II, he captained a minesweeper in the Philippines. Um, He was certified to captain the Queen Mary. Wow. Yeah. And, and wow. But he drove the glass bottom boat because he was taking care of his mother, which was the last thing his father ever said. And his mother lived to 93 on the island. Oh, my. And he did what his father, because it was heroic to him, you know, as my father was to me, very heroic. And and, uh, uh, so he took care of his mom and he sort of, uh, you know, just just didn't do a lot of the things he was capable of doing. And it's one of the reasons I was so determined to get off the island was I saw my father had this potential to, you know, he was a published poet. He, he could have captained the Queen Mary all over the world. There's so many things he could have done that would have m- fulfilled him. But he stayed on Catalina to honor his Stayed promise. on Catalina, drove that boat 12, you know, eight trips a day, uh, 12 months a year, and uh, took care of his mother. And uh, to the point that my, my folks got divorced when I was 11 because he was taking care of his mother and my mother w- was sick of it. How, so, did they, how did your parents meet? Uh, they met in the casino ballroom in 1947, uh, dancing to uh, Jimmy Dorsey. <laughs> and she, she had come over. She was 20 and he was 35. He'd just gotten out of the war. And uh, he was sort of the playboy in town. And she was this really beautiful young 20-year-old who worked for Bud Westmore at Universal as a secretary. And... Uh, and within about six weeks, they got married. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So now you're a kid. So anyway, you... so they were, so I, I, I saw, uh, they were making the movie, The Glass Bottom Boat, on my dad's boat. And how old were you when that was happening? Horace Day and Rod Taylor. 
and Arthur Godfrey was playing my father and it was <laughs> on my dad's boat. So they couldn't get rid of me. And I watched them film that day. Uh, well, several days actually, but one day in particular, Rod and, and Doris were doing a scene in the back of the boat. I was about 15 feet away and I was watching them film. And I, I had never, I, I knew I loved movies. I, I could sit in that theater and front row and you know fill my peripheral vision and watch these stories and i just thought that's magic that's just those are magicians they can make you feel things out of nothing it's just amazing you know and then i watched them do it and i went oh that's they're not like like uh you know otherworldly you know <laughs> i'm a mere mortal i thought actors must have some secret thing they do right because Doris would say, okay, well, uh, and she'd start to say her lines and then she'd screw up and go, oh, God damn it. Okay, let's do it again. Come on, let's do it again. <laughs> and I went, I can screw up and do it again. What? And literally that day, I was 15 years old. And that day I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an actor for the rest of my life. And it was 10 years before I got a job, but I knew that day that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And what preparation did you have? Had you been acting in school? Did you do? Yeah, I'd done variety shows and I was always a ham anyway. And, and you know, I dove for coins from tourists as a three and four and five and six year old, <laughs> uh, pretending to be a Tahitian diver, you know, and <laughs> speaking in dialects. And we would, I would put out cigarettes with my bare feet for tourists <laughs> and they'd put their super eight cameras they'd 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 film me you know doing that and diving off of buildings uh into a foot and a half of water and they'd be sure they were going to film me dying and oh i'd just belly flop and i'd be fine and they'd pay me 50 cents to do that and so i was i was living off of basically performing as a kid and then uh i did you know as i got older i did the school plays uh community theater in town and uh and well, you, did you movie. study dance did you study song and dance how did you become a song and dance man how did that happen well i'm not really a song and dance man i've done well you did done chicago three musicals on broadway but I, i've done three musicals on broadway yes but you have I'm not a dancer um i'm an i i i'm move athletically um okay but uh the one big dance show i did was steel pier and karen ziemba god bless her threw me around. It looked like I was leading, but <laughs> she was leading. She was, she was making me look good through that whole musical. <laughs> I, I started singing in the army. I, you know, I got drafted when I was 18. I got out of high school. I got drafted and, and I had to really make a few life decisions and decided I, I would enlist for an extra year so I wouldn't have to kill anybody. I'd be a medic. I'd enlist. If you enlisted, they'd let you choose what you would be. And everybody who was being drafted was just going straight into the infantry and straight to Vietnam and dying or killing or, you know, getting PT, coming back with PTSD and a drug addiction. And I just, you know, I don't want to kill anybody. I don't, I'm not as afraid of dying as I am of, of killing someone and having to live with it for a less than honorable cause, which I felt the Vietnam War was. And uh, so I, I, I said, I'll, I'll pay an extra year of my time to avoid that. And I became. But wait, Gregory, weren't you um, the first moral conscientious objector? Yeah, but you're getting ahead of me. I got okay. Oh, okay. I'm going I too fast. Okay. I went into boot camp. 
Okay. Oh, and so you they, were you were gonna do it? You were gonna do it? Yeah. You were gonna. Well, do it. I figured I'm gonna be a medic. How dangerous am I gonna be? Okay. You know, whether they learn how to fire a rifle or carry a, a gun or whatever. I mean, I'll, I'll be a medic. You know, I won't use the weapons. I'll I'll just be helping people. That's the way I thought it would go. Mm-hmm. Once I got in, I realized, well, first of all, they they dehumanize you in boot camp so much that they their every effort is made to and out of necessity, every effort is made to take away your humanity to make you, to immunize you, to inure you to the idea of silhouettes of soldiers falling down when you hit them with a rifle, you know? And I was a really good shot. I was expert marksman in, in boot camp. But I watched those things fall down every time, these, these, these dark shadowed silhouettes just keep falling down and falling down by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I, and I knew what they were doing to us. They were making it so that when we started shooting real people, we would have no reaction to it, just like in boot camp. And of course, that's what they have to do. But I didn't want to be that guy, you know? And so I said, no, I won't. I'm going to stop carrying a weapon. I'm not going to growl in the sand pits because you say when you're fighting hand-to-hand combat, you're an animal, you're not a human. So growl, I want to hear you growl. No, I'm not going to growl. I'll learn it, but I'm not going to growl. I'm not going to give you my humanity. Well, that got me in nothing but deep shit. I and, bet. You know, and I barely survived getting through boot camp uh, intact. I had walking pneumonia because I was out in the rain every night. Oh, God. This is my rifle. This is my gun. This is for fighting. This is for fun. <gasps> running through the rain, be- being punished, you know, for, for not being cooperative. And uh, and then I finally I did graduate from boot camp uh, miraculously and got sent to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, to become a medic. And once there, I heard this term conscientious object. Oh, you must be a conscientious objector. What's your religion? Well, wait, wait, wait. What's a conscientious objector? Somebody who doesn't carry a weapon, doesn't want to fight, doesn't want to shoot anybody. I said, Yeah, that's me. Um, but what do you mean? What's my religion? I don't have a religion. Oh, well, then you're not a CEO. Well, no, I am. I am. Um, anyway, I found out that it hadn't ever been recognized as a, uh, you know, without religion. If you had to be a Quaker, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, in order to be uh, a legitimate conscientious objector and be allowed to not carry a weapon in the armed forces. Right. And it had been fought over since the writing of the Constitution and and, uh, you know, I had been a, raised Mormon by my mother over on Catalina because she was Mormon on her side of the family and gave that up at 13 and had just had no, it just wasn't religious. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not a religious guy. It isn't for me. Was that hard for you to step away from being a Mormon? No, no. Your mom just. I've never, I've. No, she was okay with that. I've never seen such hypocrisy in my life, but you'd find that in almost any church. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just Mormonism that I right. felt that way about. It was, I, I went to the Catholic church. I went to the Protestant church. I went to the Christian science church. I tried other churches after that mm-hmm. between like 13 and 16. And I just didn't, nothing worked. The closest anything has ever worked for me is, you know, I like some Buddhism, but, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm anyway. So I, I, I said, well, that's, that doesn't, that's not right. So 
I'm going to file to become a mm-hmm. conscientious objector with no religion. And somebody, you know, stopped me. And so I filed, started the process. Mm-hmm. It kind of, you know, everybody laughed at first, all the, 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 the brass, you know, the, right. the, the different levels going up, laughed until like, the, uh, the Army Times, a newspaper that was just for Army soldiers, got wind of it, and they interviewed uh-huh. me, and it became this thing where it's like people were starting to talk about it a little bit in the press, and and uh, and why is you know they were like on my side, you know the times were changing. It was 1969. Mm-hmm. Vietnam was was a hellhole. And- we I we were we were protesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And that's right. And that leaning from that side that you were on mm-hmm. helped my side of leaning from where I was. Right. So they said, well, we don't want to have to deal with this anymore. Let's send him. We can't send him. First of all, my case was in litigation mm-hmm. or deciding you know, they hadn't yet said no or yes, because I hadn't finished all of the applications. You know, I had to go to an interview with the chaplain and with the review boards and with the doctors and with, you know all these different people mm-hmm. and different levels that I had to do these review boards. And were I you scared? Through was any of this terrifying, scary, or were you just horrifying? I was. Yeah. I was. I was eighteen years old. Yeah, this had to be terrifying. <laughs> but I. But I, I. I. I was very sure of how I felt. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was really offended that that I had done everything I could. I could have run away to Sweden. I could have shot myself in the toe. I could have pretended to be gay. Mm-hmm. I could have taken <clears throat> an enormous amount of acid and shown up for my for my at the LA induction center for my for my physical. I could. There was a, a lot of ways that I saw right. a lot of guys avoid service. Right. I I didn't feel that way. You know. I I was proud of the way I felt. And, and I thought, I'm going to do the honorable thing. I'm going to go in and I'm going to serve because I believe in, I love my country and I'm going to do what I can for my country, but I'm going to just stay true to myself also. And then it didn't work out that way. I realized once I was in boot camp that if you're the, whether you're the firing pin or the bullet or the barrel or the stock or, or, or what part of the weapon are you, it doesn't matter. The bullet doesn't fire without that. I was part of the weapon. I didn't want to be part of the weapon anymore of any weapon. Mm. And, and I felt horrible about it. I mean, my conscience was bloody red, killing me all day, every day. And I, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid. So I was, you know, I was probably, uh, uh, you know, being very mercurial and self-indulgent with, with my guilt. Are you getting support? Are you getting shit? Are you getting both? Oh no, I'm not getting any support. You're not getting anyway. There's no, no there's were, no political... My parents were ashamed of me. Um, my friends back home couldn't believe I was doing this. Um, they they were all ready to disown me for this. This was this was the antithesis of anything that anyone could respect. Wow. And I, that was what I was getting in the army as well. So it was my battle, my own little personal battle that had. I'm surprised that, that when it started to get no. in the press, though, that you didn't get some political help. No political help. No political help. No political help. At that point, no political help. Mm-hmm. So they sent me to Germany because they couldn't send me to Vietnam. They couldn't send me to combat when it was in litigation. So they sent me to Germany. They said, let's get rid of him, put him in a 
in a in a you know a medical unit, and I went to the 63rd Med Detachment helicopter medic uh, in Landstuhl, Germany, and they put me in the bottom of an old Nazi barracks that was oh by the U.S. Army and at at Landstuhl, Germany, at the biggest medical base in Landstuhl, and in in Europe, and put me in on, in the cryptograph room, which was uh, where they used to keep cryptograph machines that would decipher messages, these huge machines. And they put them, it was down in this, they had the armory on one side of the hallway and the cryptograph room on the other. And both of mm -hmm. them had metal doors and rock walls and they were underground with little tiny windows with three little bars at ground level. And they put me in that room and said, that's where you're gonna live. And I was there for the next two years, six months. And, and they'd let me out eight hours a day to go fly my missions. But they said, you cannot uh, you know, hang out with any of the other soldiers. Oh my they're, they're diseased and we don't want it to spread. So I was in that room. That was where I learned to sing. A guy had a guitar who was leaving and he sold it to me for 40 bucks. And uh, that little guitar and I were in that room underground. Uh, and I, I had been writing poetry since I was like 10 because my father was a poet and I always loved his poetry and wrote a lot as a young, as a high school student. Started putting my poems to music and learning chords, just self-taught and singing by myself in this little stone room and on a cot, on my cot, all I had was a cot and a, and a little uh, box that I kept my stuff in. And I wrote about 200 songs and several hundred poems and learned to play the guitar and learned to sing and, uh, and fought my case and went, did my review boards. And, you know, at one point I got so depressed that I tried to commit suicide because I was a medic. So I had access to morphine surrettes. And, uh, you know, which were what you use in combat, you know, a little morphine that you just jam into the thigh. I had a lot of those. Um, so I, I used them one night. Um, I didn't really want to commit suicide. I just was, I felt so hopeless. They ended up uh, saving me. Um, a friend of mine, the only friend I had there from the 583rd Med Detachment came across and happened to, happened to knock on the door down in my basement. And, uh, and he dragged me out and took me to the hospital and oh, they saved me and they put me, they put me in a psychiatric ward where I was for several weeks because I had attempted suicide. So they put me in the psychiatric ward, which was filled with real crazy people. I mean, soldiers who were really crazy, mm -hmm. uh, black soldiers who had just, who had broken under the racism of the army at that time, 1969. And uh, guys who done you know, just wanted out so bad that they just, just smoked so much Afghanistan red hashish and uh, taken so many blue Osleys that they were they just cracked their minds open and they were. What's a blue on. Osley? I didn't ever even heard L of that. LSD. One. LSD. Oh, LSD. Anyway, so so I was in there for several weeks, and uh -huh. and and I that one friend who saved me. Um, came one day and no one could visit me or anything. We were all in this big ward that no one could get to, but there was a window, it was the middle of winter and, 
And I wrote an, I, I, he had knocked on the window and somebody had said, hey, Harrison, this guy wants to talk to you. Under, and there was like this much room under the window where we could talk to each other and I could hear him. And he said, what's going on, man? Are you okay? What, I mean, are you getting out of here? What, what? And I said, no, they're not going to let me out of here. I need you to go. I'd heard about this guy in Frankfurt named, named uh, Edward Bellin. He was with mm -hmm. this law team called Bailey, Belli, and Bellin. F. Lee Bailey, Melvin Belli, and Edward Bellin. F. Lee Bailey handled Vietnam. Melvin Belli handled military cases in the U.S. Wow. Edward Bellin handled military cases in Europe for U.S. soldiers. And that, that was when they were fighting the My Lai massacre case. Wow. Bailey was fighting the, the uh, Belli was fighting the massacre, uh, you know, defending, uh, what's his name, for the My Lai massacre. And and so I had heard about Bellin. So I said, see, please go to Frankfurt, find Bellin, tell him what's happening and that they won't let me out and they're keeping me in here. And see, just just tell him I'm just trying to be a conscientious objector and I just don't want to carry wow. a weapon and they're punishing me. And he said, okay, I'll try. So a few days later, guy comes walking in in a suit. Nobody's nobody will stop him. And it's Edward Bellin. Takes, wow. him, takes him by the hand in my military and in my uh my hospital gown with the with my butt cheeks showing in the back <laughs> walked me out of there and they didn't dare stop him he was like the most famous wow and in, in the military in europe and uh walked me out of there and took me back to my little basement room and we started talking and he said all right i'll i'll try and help you um pro bono and uh, we'll see. He says, I don't know if this case can go anywhere, but uh, I'm, you know, I got you out, and now, uh, you know, we'll we'll see if I can help you. And he assigned one of his underlings to check in with me every now and then. And then he gave me a few hints. But then, after a couple of weeks, they said, you know what, we can't afford to do this because you're not going to win this case, and you can't. We we can't just keep investing in something that's unwinnable. But they got me out of there. And after that, I have never one day in my, I've understood in that psychiatric ward what hopeless really meant. And I was not hopeless. And I realized like a day after they put me in there that I was a freaking fool. I thought I was hopeless. These are hopeless people. I am completely uh, empowered and I will re-up. I will, I will re-up and stay in the army just so that I can get out on my own terms. Holy shit. <laughs> and, and that was the way it went. And, uh, and I, I started sending letters to every congressman and every senator. And, and I finished. I kept going through all the rest of the review boards. And, uh, and I convinced the chaplain to, to approve my, my application. That's a scene in itself right there. Convincing a chaplain, this secular human being convincing a chaplain that, that I should be approved, be the first human being approved as a CO with no religion. But it happened. And review boards where generals would be sitting across from me saying, now what if he's walking down the street and a big black man raped your mama? What would you do? Would you just stand there and watch him? You know, and that, that would be a real question. I mean, I got that question and others like it. And I, uh, the, the one, one of the things that that lawyer had helped me with, he said, look, when they ask you those kind of questions, just say, that's a hypothetical situation. I cannot answer a hypothetical question. Perfect. I can only tell you what I have done and how I feel. 
Wow, that's but perfect. What I would do under any circumstances. Perfect. And that would keep me from, because if I had said, well, yeah, I'd stop him. Well, then get the hell out of here. You ain't no conscientious objector. I was standing in a, in a, at a tension outside of the 63rd Med Detachment and Staff Sergeant Schaefer whispered to a guy down at the end of this line of soldiers who were all standing in the snow. The guy walks up, comes down to me and says, sorry, man, and punches me in the face, knocks me down in the snow, bloodies my lip. And then he turns and goes back down to the end. And that Sergeant Schaefer is just watching me, seeing what I'm going to do. What oh are you going to do? Are you going to defend yourself? Are you going to hit him back? Are you going to do anything? Wow. I had to just, I had to not do anything. I understood. They were, they were making other people do things just to try and just to give them some kind of witnessable evidence that I should be declined. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I finished, I got approvals from everybody. I sent it into the, to, they sent it up the, up the USARA, United States Army Europe channels, all the way to the Pentagon to get approval. And the Pentagon then sends word back all the way down the chain of command to me again. Sorry, we lost your paperwork. Okay, it took a month to get there, it took another month to get back to me. Now I, I do all that, recopy all the paperwork, and they didn't have copiers back then. You know, you had, you had mimeograph and double sheets and. Right. Did the whole thing over again, sent it up. They sent it back. Sorry, we lost your paperwork. Oh my God. Now I'm now two years and eight months in the army. I get out in four months. They're just, they're just waiting for me to get out. So they don't have to, they don't have to approve anything. So finally that about that time I'd sent all these letters. There was one person, one, one uh, politician in the entire world who responded um, it was a, a, a congressman, uh, Pete McCloskey was his name. He was a California congressman. He was the highest decorated soldier in the Vietnam War. And he, a highest decorated soldier, if anybody knows why I didn't want to kill anyone, it would be him. The people who don't want to go to war are people who have been in one. Mm-hmm. And he, wow. he responded, I mean, Ted Kennedy, all these other people, nobody responded to any of my Wow. Nobody. I mean, nobody. And I sent out at least 50 explaining everything. But he, to Pete McCloskey, went to the Pentagon and said, my name should be Pete McCloskey. I'm here representing Specialist E4 Gregory Harrison. He has applied for a conscientious objector status, non-religious. And you and you've lost his paperwork twice now. I want you to find his paperwork and make a decision, whatever it is, but make a decision on his paperwork by this Friday, or I will start a congressional investigation <laughs> into why you have so ineptly lost his paperwork twice. And that was on December 7th of 1918. Uh, uh, 71. And on December 9th, they said yes. And December 10th, I was on an airplane flying back to Fort Dix, New Jersey. When, and, where is and I said, and, and Why they, has changed, this they changed the army regulation to say, they added to the army regulation to say, and if God hold, or if, if a man's moral conscience holds the same place within his soul 
as God does in a religious man, then that man is entitled to follow his moral conscience. Oh, my Lord. Where is Steven Spielberg? Why has this not been made into a film? This is an unbelievable story. Uh, but anyway, so. Uh, Gregory, why haven't you written this screen? This is an unbelievable story. No, I'm serious. So self-indulgent. You know, I was an 18-year-old kid, idealistic and. And, uh, yeah, but you changed it for everyone after you. I did. I mean, that's, that's important. Between 1971 and 1973, when the draft ended, 1,800 guys mm -hmm. got out based on my case. Jeez. At least that was what I, that was the number I was given. Wow. But. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your service and thank you for your conscience. Well, you know, it's funny I, because I am a vet and I was honorably discharged. Mm -hmm. I did serve. Um, when people say thank you for your service, that's what I think about. That is, that is your service. That I is think your I service. saved. I think I saved a lot of lives. You know, in the long run, in a kind of obscure way, I I helped save some lives. It sounds that way to me. What? How does a medic? How, how, <laughs> how do they prepare you to be a medic? I mean, you're you're not a med student. You're not. What what is what is being trained to be a medic entail? What do they teach you? You know, how, how to uh, save somebody's life uh, from combat to, uh, to a hospital. You know, how to, how to stop the bleeding, how to do CPR, how to, uh, uh, how to amputate, um, you know. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, you wow. gotta, because you gotta do a lot of field medic stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, of course, what they taught me about CPR has changed so dramatically now. You know, they used to have you do a couple of breaths and a couple and pound on the chest and then a mm -hmm. couple of breaths and pound on the chest. Now it's all just breathing, you know. I mean, that you do have to do an occasional pounding on the chest as well. But I mean, it's, it's just the specifics of it have all changed so dramatically. But um, I actually once in, in the army, uh, during one of those eight hour shifts, I delivered a baby in the helicopter as oh we didn't get the, 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 the dependent, the soldiers, we could only pick up soldiers and their dependents. Even, a, even in a car crash or an airplane crash, we would only pick up the U.S. people. Mm -hmm. We couldn't pick up a German. I had to let Germans die, you know, wait for the German medics to come. But what we picked up a soldier and his wife, and she was deep into labor, and she the baby came out before we got to the to the helipad. And you know, I just visited Alcatraz. We were up in San Francisco, and we saw the hole, you know, and and where they would put people in solitary and stuff. And uh, aside from the suicide attempt, Okay, you were very productive. You wrote all those songs. You wrote all that poetry. You learned how to sing. You played guitar, but that had to be a really horrific experience. Yeah, it was. It was, but you know, I I didn't even wear hard shoes till I was fifteen. I mean, you know, I was an island boy. I, I was. I wore flip flops and. Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt and it's like I I figured out who I was I was put under pressure it was like a it was like a piece of coal that got put under pressure and I like to think you know some diamonds came out of it 
I really figured out who I was and what I cared about and what was important to me and what was I willing to fight for. And, and, and even against my own, my, I mean, I, I, there were nights in boot camp where I would just lie in my bunk and weep, begging myself to shut up and go along, just shut up and go along. What are you doing, man? And I couldn't, I just couldn't wow. tried. I wanted to go along and just, it would have been so much easier to just be one of the other 10,000 guys, you know, but I just wasn't, I couldn't give up my humanity. So, so that, that, you know, year and a half or whatever that I sat in that room most of every day and that I was, well, I won't use the N word, but I was called the company N word. That was what they called me. Mm. And it was very racist back then, the army. Um, because that's how they treated me, you know? And, and, um, and it, was, it was really good for me. I mean, it was re I really knew who I was. When I got out, I went back, I went back to Catalina and, and I, I knew I was going to go to Hollywood. I knew I was going to do what I had dreamt about doing before all this pain and everything had happened and mm -hmm. and uh, and people said oh man you know the odds in hollywood you know how it's a backbiting place hollywood man you know you sure you want to go to hollywood i mean that's 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 dark energy in hollywood <coughs> i was like do you know where i just came from wow really so do you how think so i'm scared of anything that hollywood can throw at me you know? Before we get to the Hollywood part, you know, I listened back to our conversation a couple of years ago, and we were talking about the idiot, and you said, he's done, I think he's done, he can't, that, that's it, he can't come back. How do you feel? Do you still feel that, um, I, it doesn't look to me like we're saved from him. Yeah, no, we're, he's done. He's done. You think? Yeah, I really do believe that. He's done. It doesn't mean that what he represents is done. Not by, by long far. In fact, I think, uh, you know, DeSantis or whoever. I was just going to say, do you think DeSantis will get the nomination? Yeah, well. Is a, is a much more dangerous man because mm -hmm. he's, he's much less obvious and uh, mm -hmm. duplicitous and intelligent. And, uh, you know, he's not as charismatic as Trump in Trump's kind of insane way, but, but he's more dangerous, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and and people, you know, I mean, Trumpism is will continue. Mm -hmm. Trumpism will continue. Mm -hmm. Do you think he'll get his comeuppance than, than the Donald? Do is. you think they'll get him? Do you think he'll serve? He'll serve time uh, behind bars? I kind of doubt it. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But he's already lost. He's he's lost uh, his cachet with too many people. There's too many Republicans now that find him embarrassing. Not for necessarily the right reasons. I, I would mm -hmm. find everything about him embarrassing, but they're embarrassed that he's so obvious. Yeah. And Pence is talking quite a bit about him these days too. Um, Anybody listen to Pence? I don't know if they do. <laughs> well, so, all right. So let's get back to you. So you, you get out of the service and you're going to go to Hollywood. How does that break? So you have 
done some plays you've you've taught yourself to sing do you come out to Hollywood do you study do you audition do you do both how do you jump in I uh well I spent a few a couple of months in Catalina sort of getting myself together and getting ready and while I was doing that I did the, uh, I worked as a doorman at a bar called the Chichi Club and Jason Robards came one evening when he was mm-hmm. filming a movie over there and saw me in a in the Fantastics playing El Gallo and uh, he came back drunk afterward and told me he thought I was pretty good and uh, I could make a living doing this. Wow. And uh, I could act it out for you, but I did it earlier. I did it on the last time we did it. Um, but, but that was all I needed. And I was pretty ready. It was like toward the end of summer and I was ready to make my move. And about two weeks earlier, coincidentally, I had had a one night fling with a girl who came over on the boat. And she, beautiful blonde actress, wannabe. And uh, she wrote her number down. She said, if you ever come to the mainland, come come visit. So I said, no, 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 all right. So they said, give me your number. So she gave me her number. It was on the back of a card. And, uh, and on the other side of the card was Estelle Harmon's Actors Workshop and the phone number and address. And I had... I'd never heard of an actor's workshop. I didn't know of any actor's workshops. I'd just gotten back from two, two and a half years in Germany. I, I didn't know anything about Hollywood or where I would, should go if I got to Hollywood or any of that. I, was, I knew I was ready to make my move. I had about $100 in the bank. I was going to say, how much money did you have when you went about to About $100 Hollywood? in the bank. And, uh, and so I got on the boat. The next day after Jason Robards told me that, I got on the boat and I went to the mainland and I took a bus to Hollywood and I walked down to the corner of Melrose and La Brea, right where Estelle Harmon's workshop was, and I walked in and never did call the girl, but I, but I, <laughs> you used the other side of the car. I used the I other side it. of the car. And, uh, and I said, Hi, I'm, I'm, I want to study acting. Do you take the GI Bill? Because I didn't have any money. And, uh, but, I had the GI Bill because I had honorable discharge. And uh, she goes, oh, yeah, we'll take the GI Bill. And uh, wow. she said, here, here's a cold reading. Do, do a cold reading. I did one. And she said, yeah, we'll put you in our beginner's class. Sounds good. And uh, I said, OK, good. And then I walked around the corner to Sycamore and Melrose. And there was an apartment for rent for $50 a month right between two doors, one with two gay bars. One was called David's and the other one was called Goliath's. And then there was, <laughs> there was a doorway in between with scales going up and there was an apartment up there for 50 bucks a month, rats included. <laughs> and uh, and I, I rented that apartment. And so I could walk, it was only about three or 400 yards from the workshop. Mm-hmm. And that was the start of it. Wow. I ate popcorn and macaroni and cheese, 17 cent craft macaroni and cheese for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a while and started studying. It was the most fun I'd ever had in my life. And it, every day was a new revelation. And uh, and uh, I was there for two or three years. I started a window washing route down Santa Monica Boulevard, all through the Swiss Alps. And uh, uh, at night, I'd, I'd wash windows on the ground floors of stores. I underbid everybody else who was doing it at the time. So I'd wash windows four times a month and indoors one time a month. And, uh, you know, and I'd make enough money to pay my rent and, and buy some food. And eventually I got a car, a little Opal Cadet. And uh, 
you know, that for like $300 used, very used. <laughs> and, uh, and I just proceeded to, to study for four and a half years, five years, almost five years. Went from Estelle's to Stella Adler to Strasbourg summer courses when they'd come out from New York and teach. Right. And then I got, uh, somebody came into a, one of my workshops and they had said, who's, who's your, who are your young leading men? And, and, you know, who's your best young leading men in the school? And, and, uh, they said, well, come to this class. And I was doing a scene and they, they saw me do the scene and they said, well, will you star in a movie for us? I said, what do you mean? That's just an unbelievable. No, and I, I said, what do you mean, star in a movie for you? I didn't know. I wasn't even in the union. I didn't have an agent. I, but I had been studying for three or four years, and I was getting right. good. Um, and they said, yeah, we, my, my father gave me $100,000 to make a, a film. We won a Super 8 contest at UCLA. And so we're going to, 100000 we're going to make a movie. We're going to shoot it on weekends for a year. We can't pay you. But if you want to star in a movie and get some experience, we'd love to have you do it for us. I said, okay, deal. <laughs> Drove my Opal down to Long Beach every weekend. We'd shoot from Friday night till Monday morning, pay for one day film or camera rental and light rental. You'd pay for one day and get, and we'd literally shoot from Friday night till Monday morning. Wow. And uh, uh, after, you know, a year, uh, they, had a, they had the movie shot. And then they cut it together. Charles Champlin, the big times critic at the time, saw it, flipped out, wrote an article about it on the cover of the calendar section, raving about me and my performance. Wow. And the movie. And Sid Sheinberg was running Universal. And he said, I'll buy that. And he bought the movie. He went, that's really got some bad stuff in it. We're going to have to reshoot <laughs> half of it. So I got in the union. Because Universal was reshooting half the movie. Wow. I got a phone call from Joan Scott at Scott and Smith Associates, which was a big agency. And Joan said, are you represented? You know, she had looked, she had tracked me down through this article. I said, no, I don't have an agent. She said, would you like one? <laughs> so I had an agent. I got in the union and I was starring in a movie for Universal overnight after five years. Unbelievable. So I, I didn't ever really do the little bit part climb into a career kind of thing, you know? It was like, I just didn't get any jobs or any attention until all of a sudden I was ready to do lead roles. Wow. Yeah. And so... And here's, here's how backwards my career is. I came east to Hollywood. <laughs> Good point from Hawaii. In yeah. East to Hollywood. I mean, Catalina rather. I started in, mm -hmm. in feature films, worked my way into television. <laughs> and when I had a huge television hit, then I bought a theater and started doing theater. And eventually worked my way 20 years later to Broadway. I did a complete reverse career arc. It's, that's wild. Isn't it? That's wild. Completely reversed. But I got it all in. It just did it backwards. And so you've gotten it all in and you've done these different mediums. Do you have a fair? I mean, I know it's like your, your favorite kid. Do you have a medium that calls you still? That, I mean, you're doing television now. You're 
Yeah, you just no, did uh, theater. It's not TV. It's not TV. Uh, yeah, the medium, <laughs> the medium that calls me is 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 theater and film, feature film, because I love the process, you know. And the more I can participate in a process, have the time and the and the uh, you know the permission to to really do all that actor stuff that is so boring for anybody not an actor to hear about is joyful to me. I mean, it's so rewarding to me. I did a film about, I did a film last year, just before I didn't, I guess, October, November, called Jimmy and Carolyn. Mm -hmm. uh, little low, very ultra low budget uh, feature film. You know who Mary Beth Peel is? I don't think so. Do you ever see The Good Wife? Remember The Good Wife, the series? Yeah, she I played do. the mother in The Good Wife. She's a wonderful mm -hmm. Broadway actress. Mm -hmm. um, she and I played, you know, it was the best work I've ever done. Wow. And we, and we lived together in a house for a month in Rhode Island. And the four of us in the cast. It was basically like a play, but we were doing it as a film. And we were shooting exteriors too, as opposed to a play. But, mm -hmm. but we lived in this house in Rhode Island together, breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, and rehearsed uh, 21 days, all day, every day, 10 hours a day for 21 days, and then shot the movie in six days. Oh, my. Wait, brought tell me what in, this is brought called? A, brought a crew in and shot the movie in six days, one sixth of a movie per day long scenes oh my we had it locked it was so much fun and and we we were we had bonded during this this time of living together and rehearsing all day and 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 buying groceries together and cooking in the kitchen together at night and it was like we became this family and it was about a family wow. and and it, it was just an astounding experience for me as an actor and by far the best work I've ever done. Can we stream? Is this available? Can oh, we Jimmy and Carol Lynch in the festivals now. It, it, it played the Burbank Film Festival. It wow. won an award there. And uh, um, it's, it's doing festivals all over the world right now. But it's, it's a little tiny film, you know. It's not going to make any money. It's not that a... That doesn't matter. It's just a really good uh, piece, of, piece of cinema that I was really lucky to do. And... And, and it was different from anything I've ever done. And it was sort of took me into that. I played a guy dying of cancer and, uh, you know, who's, who's also an alcoholic. I smoked uh, 40 cigarettes a day for real. Really? Yeah. And was that hard to stop? No, I, I was an addict for 27 years with smoking. So no, I, I, I can do it, but I have no desire to be a smoker anymore. Mm -hmm. I've gone 34 years since the last time I was an addict, you know. But anyway, so it was like this great project, and and I'm I'm so I still feel at this age and at this point in my career, I still feel like this is this has made me believe that the best work is possibly ahead. That my best work is possibly ahead. And that's such a great feeling. That's a great way to roll out of the bed in the morning, even if it's for a soap, even if it's to just go in and do a, you know, a, a few lines as a, a recurring character on 911. I, I feel like 
I still can create gems. It's important to me to be able to roll out of bed at, out of bed at <clears throat> 5.30 in the morning and not, and not put my feet on the floor going, oh, okay, I got to get it together. It's to put my feet on the floor and go, this might be the day. This might be the day I might just create that gem. And that's what I was just going to tell you that, that in acting classes, it was the best time because every day I'd discover new gems. Every day I didn't know what was coming my way, but I was going to figure something out that was going to take me closer to my dream. And then my dream was be an actor who can work the rest of his life, you know, and, and be proud of his skills. Well, now that's still my dream. And I still feel like, that's possibly ahead of me. I love that. Of course, it's possibly still ahead of you. And now with all the streaming and everything, the TV How lucky the is that? How lucky it's... am I to have picked something, to have picked something that I could do for the rest of my life and knock wood, am doing for the rest Fantastic. of my life. You Fantastic. You are living your dream. It's living my dream. Absolutely. Living in gratitude. I'll tell you. And, and you know, there, I, I, you know, I have, I'm 72. I got issues. You know, I got I got health issues. I got I got a lot of stuff going on that I could focus on. I live in gratitude. I just I counter every negative thought with my list of what I'm grateful for. Every negative thought instantly gets nullified. Can you name a few things other than your career and this opportunity, things that you're grateful for? It's that time of year. Yeah, my my health that I have enough health that I'm able to still think clearly and do what I love. Mm -hmm. um, that I'm here for my kids and now my grandkids. <coughs> that I've been married for 42 years. Unbelievable. To the same woman, which is <laughs> probably in Hollywood years that's like 180, and uh, and that you know we still love each other and and uh, respect each other and and look forward to more years together that, uh, you know, that I, that I still have, have uh, joie de vivre, you know, that's Fantastic. what I'm, that's what it's, I'm grateful for, that I, that life is still, that the balance, the scale, you know, I'm not interested, I'm not afraid, I've realized that I'm not afraid of dying, I'm afraid of living badly. Ooh. And, and I, so it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And I'm living a quality life still. So that's, if, if nothing else was the case, that would be a reason to be grateful. All it's spectacular, Gregory. And the last time we talked, you said uh, you're, we're both people in recovery and sober. And you said that you hadn't lied since you got sober. Is that still true? Have you not lied to, I, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> Not I've I have not told a lie since I got sober. If I told a lie, it's it there that I could I could do a snort of cocaine and not be as back in my disease as as I would be if I told a lie. Because wow. my disease was more about lying, became more about lying than about anything. Mm -hmm. The 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 snorting of, of coke made me feel bad about myself. The lying made me hate myself. Yeah. You know, so uh, no, I, I I don't lie, I don't lie. I, you know, my my efforts really go to how to be gently brutal with the truth. 
mm. both to myself and to others. Gently brutal. Don't, that can be you know, tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. And sometimes mm. it's unsuccessful. But sometimes I hurt my own feelings and sometimes I hurt other people's feelings by mm. being too truthful, too fast, too hard. But better that than lying. Well, I'm, not, you, I'm no longer, I'm no longer, a, you know, like when you're younger, you, you go, oh, well, some, you know, white lies, they're not, they're harmless. And then, no, lying is, is, is harmful. Lying is harmful. There are ways to be tactful and kind and all those other qualities are really important, but not, not more important than, than truth. I love that. Gregory, thank you so much for always being so, we, we, we barely touched. I mean, I feel like each time we, this time we really focused on, on, I want you to write, I, I, you don't have to write that screenplay. Some, somebody just said, Tova just said she wants to write the screenplay. I mean, this, your story has to be told. This is just, this is very important. This is an American story. Um, it that, is American, isn't it? It is. And it's important. What a thing you've done. And that, so when I say thank you for your service, that's what I'm thanking you for. What, 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 uh, to have endured all that to stand true to your convictions is very inspiring. And the same thing with the no lying and the truth and, and, um, being so committed to it. And I think that that has a lot to do with all the gifts and the joys that have come to you in life um, is because you've been willing to do the hard work. Maybe that's why. I, I know that I'm the luckiest guy I know and, uh, and I don't forget it. But maybe I've earned it to some extent, but I've also been more than, I've, 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 I've had more luck than I've earned and I'm, and I'm, I'm aware of it. Well, I made just continue. this, just this. I was born in 1950. Yeah. North America in the United States, male and white. <laughs> That's a pretty I big the, gift. I hit the lottery. Yeah. Before I even came out of the womb, I had hit the lottery. So, you know, I can't forget that. I have, I've had male privilege, white privilege. Uh, American privilege. I've had the benefit of all those things. And if I'm not grateful, then I'm, I have no tolerance for people who aren't like that, who, who aren't grateful and don't recognize their own good fortune. But I, I believe I have to, I have to, you know, if there is a God, <laughs> uh, thank him or her every day. Well, that, uh, that gratitude definitely invites more good to come on a daily basis. And I can't wait to see Jimmy and Carol. I'm so excited. Carolyn. Gonna... Jimmy and Carolyn, I'll send you a link. Carolyn, okay. Is there a link? No. I'll find one. I'll find one. I, I would it. so love to see it. I can't wait. And as always, just such a joy to spend time with you and to, I, I'm so inspired. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I want to do something <laughs> with it. Um, pay it forward, I guess. Wonderful well, to see you. Gregory. Thank you. I, I adore you. I love talking to you, and and uh, and I love this. I love your your show. If you can call it a show, it, it seems like more than a show, but but uh, uh, I love participating, and and uh, let's do it again, and let's catch absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. No COVID for us. Poo, 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 poo. <laughs> okay. Send me a link. I want a link. I will. 
I will. Thank you, Gregory. Take care.